mattina mi sono alzato, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 la mattina mi sono alzato e ho trovato l'invaso, oh partigiano, portami via, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 partigiano, portami via, che mi sento di morire, e se io muoio, Partigiano, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 e se io muoio da partigiano, tu mi devi seppellire, e seppellire la sua montagna, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 e seppellire la sua montagna. Okay, welcome to the latest edition of the Political Imagination podcast. And today we're discussing the war in Ukraine. And I'm pleased to welcome Adam Johannes from Cardiff Stop the War Coalition. Um, before we start, I understand, Adam, that you'd like to read an anti-war statement from Russian left against the war. So please do. Okay, this is a statement that was issued by Russian socialists who tried to build an anti-war coalition, you're in the belly of the beast. Okay. The Russian government betrayed its promises of peace and stability, leading the country into war and economic catastrophe. Like any war in history, this one divides all of us into poles. Are we for or are we against? The Kremlin propaganda tries to convince us that the nation is all united behind the government and that it is only the pathetic renegades, the pro-Western liberals and the enemy mercenaries who demand peace. This is an untenable lie. This time, the old men of the Kremlin are in the minority. Most Russians do not want a fratricidal war, even among those who still trust the Russian government. They close their eyes as best they can so as not to see how the world drawn by Russia's propagandists, disintegrates before them. Many still hope that this is not a war, much less an aggressive war, but a special operation designed to liberate the Ukrainian people. Terrible footage of brutal bombing and shelling of cities will soon destroy these myths. And then even Putin's most loyal voters will say, we did not give you consent of this unjust war. Already today, tens of millions of people all over Russia have expressed their horror and disgust at the actions of the Putin administration. These are people of different political persuasions. Most, as the propagandists claim, are not liberals, 
Among them are a great many people of leftist persuasion. And of course, these people, the majority of our people are true patriots. We are told that we opponents of the war are hypocrites, that we stand not against the war, but for the West. This is a lie. We have never been supporters of the United States and its imperialist policies. When Ukrainian troops shelled Donetsk and Luhansk, we were not silent, nor will we be silent now when Kharkiv, Kiev, and Odessa are being bombed on the orders of Putin and his gang. There are so many reasons for us to fight against this war. For us, supporters of social justice, equality, and freedom, several are especially important. This is an unjust invasion. There is no threat to the Russian state that exists that would warrant sending our soldiers to kill and be killed. They're not liberating anyone. They're not helping any popular movement. They're nothing but a regular army tearing down peaceful Ukrainian towns at the behest of a handful of billionaires who dream of keeping their grip on Russia forever. This war is producing incalculable disaster for our peoples. Both Ukrainians and Russians are paying for it clearly and dearly with their blood. Long after the dust has settled, poverty, inflation, and unemployment will affect everyone. It's not the oligarchs and the bureaucrats who will foot the bill for this war, but the poor, the teachers, the workers, the pensioners, the disabled and the unemployed. Many of us will have no means to feed our children. This war will turn Ukraine into rubble and Russia into a prison. The opposition media have already been shut down. People are being put behind bars for sharing anti-war leaflets, innocuous pickets, even for posts on social media. Soon Russia, Russians will have only one choice, prison or signing up for the war. War produces dictatorship unlike that any living generations have seen. This war spreads and multiplies all the risks and threats to our countries. Even Ukrainians a week ago who sympathized with Russia are now enlisting to fight our troops. With his aggression, Putin has undermined critiques of the crimes of Ukrainian nationalists and all the intrigues of United States and NATO hawks. Putin has given them all the justifications for putting new missiles and military bases along our borders. Finally, fighting for peace is the patriotic duty of every single Russian. Not only because we are the custodians of the memories of the worst war in history, the Second World War, but also because this war threatens the integrity and the very existence of Russia. Putin is seeking to connect his own fate with the fate of our country. If he succeeds, then his inevitable defeat will be the defeat of the entire nation. Then we may indeed face the fate of post-war Germany, occupation, territorial division, the cult of collective guilt. There is only one way to prevent these catastrophes. We ourselves, the men and women of Russia, have to stop this war. This country belongs to us, not a handful of crazed old men with palaces and yachts. It's time to take it back. Our enemies are not in Kiev and Odessa, but in Moscow. It's time to kick them out. War is not Russia. War is Putin and his government. That is why we, Russian socialists, are against this criminal war. We want to stop the war in order to save Russia. No to intervention, no to war, no to dictatorship, 
notes of poverty. That's a very powerful statement. And uh, I think um, it's, it's incredibly brave for the, the people that have um, released that. So that leads me on to ask you our first question. And that is, why do Stop the War Cardiff oppose Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think that when we look at what's happening in Mariupol, you know, a city which is about the size of Bristol, was once the site of a major annual music festival attended by thousands on a beach as a Premier League football team. And we see hundreds of people being slaughtered. Then, you know, we have to act. And I think we have to ask ourselves, is this to be the fate of so many human beings in the 21st century, cowering in basements, whether in Mariupol or Grozny or Gaza or Fallujah or Aleppo, cowering in basements while powerful military machines unleash terror and rain down destruction. And I think we have to say this must not be the fate of human beings. And in the name of humanity, we have to stop this war. And then we also have to talk about the refugee crisis. Two million people have been forced to flee Ukraine seeking sanctuary in Slovakia and Poland and Hungary and beyond. And this already adds to the toll of refugees you know, millions of people on the march on this planet seeking safety from war. You, we know already that the American-led war on terror and the crushing of the Arab Spring has created the biggest refugee crisis you know, since the Second World War. And now we're going to have even more refugees on this planet. And I think, you know, I really wanted to start by really paying tribute to the Ukrainian people. There's 40 million people now in Ukraine are trapped in what's going to be a killing field. Uh, 40 million people who are struggling with access for basic essentials now due to the war, like food, water, electricity, and gas. And I think the resilience of the Ukrainian people, the face of this invasion has been tremendously inspiring. You know, the popular resistance denied Putin his quick victory. He thought he was just a march across Ukraine in a week and uh, turned it back into a Russian colony but also the civilian resistance, which is not often talked about in the first um, city which fell to Russian uh, occupation, Kherson. We saw thousands of people, unarmed civilians, come out to confront Russian troops. And we saw your young Russian conscripts nervously firing their guns into the air. And I think this fraternization of people, your ordinary people uh, with invading soldiers is very important for changing the hearts and minds of those soldiers and persuading them to oppose the war. But, um, but I think this resistance was important because I think this opened up the space then for a Russian anti-war movement to emerge. And we've seen so far in very desperate circumstances, 15,000 Russians have been arrested opposed to this war during the first three weeks. And that's tremendously inspiring. We've seen other acts of um, you know, tremendous solidarity, for instance, uh, rail workers in Belarus. Uh, uh, they kind of sabotage the railways uh, going from Russia, you know, going through Belarus in Ukraine to stop the supply of Russian military equipment. We've seen uh, the tremendous international solidarity, huge demonstrations around the world. And um, we're also seeing, I think, on a small scale, we hear rumors of Russian soldiers who are refusing to fight or sabotaging their own equipment or expressing anti-war views. And so I think we see in that all the elements, classical elements, where how we stop a war 
you know, you have resistance in the invaded country, you have an anti-war movement in the country that is invading, you have international solidarity, and hopefully you have the invading troops eventually mutinying and refusing to fight, and you have action by workers. Because I think, um, you know, our government often, they try and maneuver us into this idea that we have to just look to the great powers, to the governments to stop the war. But, um, you know, I remember during the last major war in Europe, uh, when NATO, in 1999, when NATO bombed Serbia, uh, people told, in the former Yugoslavia, people said, oh, this is the only way to topple Milosevic. But Milosevic, he wasn't toppled by 78 days of NATO bombing. He was toppled when a million Serbian workers a year later stormed the parliament. You know, that's what um, brought things to an end. But um, I'm sorry for speaking at length. I think the other dimension of this war, which is very important, is, you know, obviously Ukrainians suffer most, but this is war as a threat to the region and a threat to world peace, you know, in many different layers. For instance, you know, the working class of the world and the poor are going to pay the cost of this war. 40% of um, uh, Europe's oil comes from uh, Russia. You know, a quarter of the wheat of the world comes from Russia and Ukraine. We're already seeing in countries like Egypt, wheat prices are being put up. Um, we're seeing the sort of militarization of Eastern Europe um, and you know, of Europe. You know, Germany uh, voted, I think, three weeks ago to double, more than double their military budget. And then we see Belarus, whose government are in the Russian bloc. They're now talking about they're going to station you know, Russian nuclear weapons on their soil. We see Ireland. Um, you know, a state which was born in a war of independence against the British Empire during the First World War, because they saw the way rival powers, rival imperialists tore up, uh, tore up Europe. They have a strong commitment to neutrality that's lasted decades, but there's increasing pressure from the Irish establishment that we should join up with NATO. We should link ourselves more aggressively with American imperialism. So, you know, it's a very dangerous situation where, you know, already we see you, know, you always see this in one war, the seeds of the next war. You know, we saw in the First World War, the, you know, the end of the First World War, the seeds of the Second World War. We saw the end of the Cold War, the seeds of this war. So um, we have to act on every front, I think, to stop this war. Well, that's a very comprehensive answer. And um, I have to say that um, I do agree with you, particularly about the way in which um, the, the sheer volume of weapons that are being flooded into Ukraine now is, is eye-watering, really. It's coming coming from all directions, um, whether it's from Russia or from the West. Now, I want you to um, tell us a little bit about your um, involvement in the anti-war movement, the Stop the War Coalition. I know it goes back some time, Adam, because we've had some contact in the past. And, you know, I can remember going back to drone, the, when I, I initiated the drone campaign network Gumri, that you were part of that and also you know, when you came to um, speak to a stop the war meeting up in Aberystwyth that was a few years ago as well so I know that you've got a long history of involvement maybe you could tell us a bit more about your involvement in the anti-war movement and in particular stop the war. Um, yeah I first became involved in stop the war coalition the uh, Week after 9-11, you know, we had a meeting around 100 people in a community center in Cardiff, which is now being uh, shut due to austerity cuts. Um, you know, there were people in the Labour Party and Plaid Cymru, from the far left and CND, you know, people from faith groups. Um, but I think the reason why I stayed uh, with the anti-war movement 
over the last 20 years is because um, you know, I believe that the bombs that we drop on other people's countries explode into our own society. Not only because war is the enemy of the poor, you know, the money into war is money out of our communities, but you know, in the um, treatment of the Muslim, particularly the Muslim population of this country during the war on terror as a suspect population by our government. You know, um, Islamophobia is not just a hate crime, it's a state crime. It's been the ruling ideology of our ruling class uh, for almost two decades in the bonfire of civil liberties and the attacks on democratic freedoms we saw, you know, as a consequence of the war on terror. Uh, so that made me want to be committed, um, you know, in this uh, struggle of war, because I believe not only does it create horror abroad, but it also corrodes our own uh, democracy. And I remember, I think when we launched the Stop the War Coalition uh, in Cardiff, it was on a very simple three-point platform. It was Stop the War, which was initially Afghanistan, then it became Iraq, then it became this never-ending war without end uh, that's gone on for 20 years. It was defending civil liberties, because we knew that war is always used to crack down on freedom at home. And it was to stand against the racism uh, that we thought would arise from the war, uh, which we saw. And I remember the period when people asked us to explain the logic behind the American war. I think we said, so very simple, we said at the end of the Second World War, the United States was the leading economy in the world. But now American power is in economic decline. And in a sense, um, in the run-up to 9-11, influential neoconservatives started saying, well, we see threats from rival uh, imperialist states and rising powers, but we have something which our rivals lack. We have the biggest army, the biggest air force, and the biggest navy, and we can use military power to really buttress our economic power and make sure the United States and the Western Bloc remains the top dog. And then what happened during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is that they were a disaster. They didn't go as the West planned. And so what's happened is, even though America is still the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, as Martin Luther King uh, used to call it, we're now seeing, with the decline of American power, then um, your rising powers now uh, want to act like the United States. And uh, there's huge tension, I think, in the global system, because America is terrified that China could become the number one economy in the world. And so you're seeing the South China Sea, a huge military buildup. But then I think the other thing you're happening, uh, seeing is that um, you're much smaller states in a regional sense, you are flexing their muscles and trying to intervene and expand military and economically more. So we're in a very dangerous world. And so I think that's why it's very important that we have your know, campaigns like uh, Stop the War Coalition, which are based on the idea of international solidarity and ending wars, and particularly on targeting our own government, because you know, we're sometimes criticized for this. We, you know, we live in Britain, which is your, uh, your junior partner to the United States. So the best way we can help the world is to try and rein in our own warmongers. Well, thank you. Um, my next question revolves around um, the demonizing of the Russian people. So the question is this, what is your opinion on Russophobia and the demonizing of ordinary Russians? Well, I think in the first week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it was very interesting. There were a lot of spontaneous actions in solidarity. And it was very interesting because the kind of slogans people gravitated towards internationally were, you know, stop war, 
and peace. And I felt these were very resonant slogans, particularly in the West, when we have our own histories of illegal wars and invasions and military aggression. But it felt like a few days later, the establishment started to take back control of the narrative and suddenly the tone became much more militaristic and chauvinistic and nationalistic. So you had um, a concert pianist uh, whose concert was canceled in Montreal. You know, uh, he had denounced the war at risk to himself and his family back in Russia, but he was Russian. You saw um, a TV series based on a novel by Leo Tolstoy, uh, the most influential and famous pacifist of the 19th century. It was canceled because he was Russian. Uh, you saw an Italian university try to cancel a class on uh, the writing of Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, someone who was imprisoned as a young by, man by the Russian state because he was a Russian. And so there was, I think this uh, concerted drive to frame this in this very nationalistic way, you know, Russia bad, the West good. Uh, but I think one of the things which was um, uh, so objectionable about this is the level of courage Russian people have shown in opposing the war. You know, as I said, 15,000 Russians have been arrested opposing this war. And particularly in the artistic community, thousands of Russian artists and cultural workers have signed anti-war statements. We saw Russian cultural leaders resign from institutions, arts institutions in Russia to protest the war. And in a sense, I felt like, well, actually these are people showing a courage and commitment and conviction that actually we didn't see from the artistic community in Britain or the United States during the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and so we should be amplifying these voices you know, rather demonizing Russians, we should be amplifying that um, Russians are speaking out. And also those, I think the other thing which obviously gets to a lot of people is the terrible hypocrisy. You know, when our own country and the United States and the West has such a blood-soaked history, you know, the idea that we're demonizing another country, uh, you know, it's quite sickening. Yeah, well, I agree. So, I mean, given given that that is actually taking place, um, uh, the, the role of politicians in Britain generally, but in particular in Wales. I mean, let's focus a little bit on what's got, what's actually going on um, in, amongst Welsh politicians. Um, politicians, including Adam Price and Mick Antoniou in Wales, have used rhetoric referencing World War Two and Hitler in relation to Putin's war. Is this helpful? Well, I remember a century ago, so I don't literally remember, but I remember reading about a century ago that anti-war socialists, they started to notice that their politicians, their media, their establishment were masters at denouncing the war of rival wars and crimes of rival imperial states, but only to rally people behind their own war machines. I think there's a sense of this uh, in this rhetoric that um, we're encouraged to pretend that Russia is uniquely evil. You know, I'm obviously an opponent of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but um, you know, come on, you know, like, uh, has Russia killed as many people as the United States in the war in Vietnam, you know, or even the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan? Or even if we look at what the United States does in its own backyard, it commits all kinds of crimes. It's, blockaded Cuba for six decades. It's um, 
invaded the island of Grenada to oppose neoliberalism at gunpoint. It sponsored uh, coups, most famously in Chile, you know, where thousands died and thousands uh, had to flee. It's, uh, you know, uh, it uh, tried to overthrow the government, you know, the left-wing government of Nicaragua on the Sandinistas, sponsoring right-wing terrorists and paramilitaries. So it has, you know, a huge amount of blood on its hands, but um, which almost uh, tried to be convinced by certain leaders that Putin is uniquely evil. So this is very dangerous because I think this encourages us to rally behind our own um, our own war machine. So I think we have to reject this rhetoric and we have to say that we're against all warmongers, East and West. And I think something else that we've noticed, which is very odd in Wales, is um, for the last 20 years, we were told by the Welsh government it couldn't really comment on wars abroad or international affairs because it was a non-devolved matter. But uh, what we discovered the last three weeks is they can comment on war, but only if it's uh, white Europeans dying and if it's uh, waged by a rival state uh, to the Western Bloc. You know, if it's a war that Britain's involved in, which creates carnage like Iraq and Afghanistan, they can't say a thing. Or if it's a war committed by an ally of Britain and America, like Israel and Palestine, or a Saudi Arabia and Yemen, they won't say a thing. In fact, it's worse than that, actually, because, um, you know, um, for instance, the London Arms Fair, the world's biggest arms fair in London, uh, Sadiq Khan, the Labour Mayor of London, he called for it to get out of London. But... Uh, our, our Welsh government, they say, you know, they use our money to send a delegation there to Wales Arms Fair. Over the last 20 years, they've heavily linked up, you know, Wales with the arms industries who supply the product that is That's used against Palestinians, Kurds, you know, Kazakhs. You know, it's utterly hypocritical, you know. Uh, you know so when you see this emoting, you know, from Welsh politicians about people dying, you just have to think what nasty racists these people are where they feel sympathy for you. You know, white people in Ukraine, but they don't feel sympathy for people who die, you know, the countries which are their own government is bombing. You know, it's disgusting. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, you know, the the, uh, the National Assembly for Wales, as it was before it became the Senate, right, fully, fully supported the arms fairs that took place in Aberfault when they, when they were uh, trying to sell their latest developments in drone technology to the world. They had international, two international arm fairs down there. And of course, the Welsh government were directly involved with that. Labour politicians, polite politicians, and politicians all around, really. So, and I mean, that, I'm not surprised at that, really. Um, I was so, going to say, just, um, can I just add, because I think something else we've seen is, you know, the double standards are so blatant. You're uh, a Ukrainian family making Molotov cocktails, a yeah. heroic. But you're Palestinians throwing Molotov cocktails at Israeli tank, a terrorist. We saw, you know, huge demonstrations across Wales in solidarity with the Palestinians last May. And then we saw, you know, um, from the, you know, Mark Dreyfus, he made the most tepid, bland statement that didn't really acknowledge that there was a oppressor oppressed in this conflict. We saw, um, you know, uh, the MPs for Plaid Cymru initially it issued such a bland statement that even Pai Kirby members revolted against. You know, uh, naturally, because their party had a long-standing anti-war commitment, and so, you know, this is um, this does almost send a message, you know, about the pecking order, you know, uh, and the way you know, our political establishment of Wales thinks. Yeah. Well, it brings me on nicely to uh, a couple more questions, really. Um, first of all. 
Why does the Stop the War Coalition raise the slogan, Stop NATO Expansion in its opposition to Russia's war? Well, um, NATO is the nuclear-armed military alliance that binds Europe to American foreign policy that has, um, in recent history, waged wars of aggression against the people of Afghanistan and the people of Libya. But I think, you know, if we look back 30 years to the end of the Cold War, I mean, I remember, I was a kid at the time, but I remember those jubilant scenes of thousands gathering at the Brandenburg Gate, tearing down the Berlin Wall. And, you know, at, the sense, at that time, there was a sense, oh, the war is over. No longer we can have this Europe where two rival powers, I think they used to call it mad, mutually assured destruction, where they had nuclear weapons pointing at each other's uh, capitals. And there was this idea that, oh, Europe, you know, both sides, the old enemies will become friends. They'll come together in common security and economic arrangements. I remember um, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, he made a famous speech where he talked about our common European home. But that wasn't what happened. Instead, what happened was the Russian economy was very uh, crippled and weak at the end of the war. And then the West uh, expanded its economic and military bloc you know, into Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, to serve its business interests. And you know, more and more countries uh, join NATO. You know, we have more and more military bases and militarization of Eastern Europe. And it was inevitable in that situation that sooner or later, Russia would, uh, much like the United States, seek to intervene military to buttress and expand its economic power uh, you know, to um, defend its business interests in Eastern Europe. And I think there's an accident. Sometimes when people talk about this, that as if Russia is just an innocent victim. It's very important to say that, um, you know, Russia is an imperialist power too, you know, a much smaller one uh, than the Western powers, but it has its own, you know, agenda of expansionism. But I think that's why it's so, but I think what I'm trying to get at is, uh, you know, conflict is built up into the logic of this confrontation between NATO and Russia. You know, the expansion of NATO, it builds conflict. I mean, I remember, I think it was in 2014 when the NATO summit happened in Newport in Wales. Uh, during the demonstrations against that, I met a lot of peace activists from Eastern Europe. They said, what we're really concerned about is, you know, we're seeing a huge military buildup. You know, we're seeing, you know, with this conflict goes, you know, military builds up, huge military exercises on both sides, you know, um, moving troops in, high military spending, this logic of conflicts. And they said, we need to find ways to de-escalate, put pressure on world leaders to de-escalate rather than escalate um, conflicts. And I think the other thing that really struck home to me is they said, but, they said, but when we look at the countries, you know, whether their rulers are in the Russian bloc or aligned with the West, you know, many of the problems we face as ordinary people are quite similar. You know, we have housing crises, you know, rising living costs. Uh, you know, we have your know, attacks on our democracy. You know, um, so he said, really, we should be working together. You know, against our rules, not in uh, these rival blocks. And I think one of the great tragedies I think of what's happened to Ukraine. I heard a some from the Ukrainian pacifist movement where he said, oh, said we will also be caught up in this maelstrom of you know two economic and military blocks, and we decide. You know, our government decides to choose one, which you know, inspired a backlash uh, from the rival one. And I think when we look at Ukraine, though, we have to say that they, Ukraine people, they've not really benefited from being caught up in these 
games of rival, rival imperialist blocks. You know, Ukraine is the poorest, before this invasion, Ukraine was the poorest country in Europe. Ukraine is a deeply in debt, actually, at the moment. You know, um, uh, I think around a third of Ukraine's uh, economy is locked up in debt, paying debts of Western institutions. And this has been used to, you know, over the last seven or eight years to impose, you know, the classic program austerity cuts and privatization of the Ukrainian people. You know, um, it's not really thought about, but since 2014, for example, household gas prices went up 650% in Ukraine. And that was a choice of the, was the establishment in um, Ukraine, you know, particularly the pro-Western establishment that rather than expropriate Ukraine's oligarchs, uh, they chose to um, take uh, loans from the West and uh, impose your austerity on their own people. And I think something we can demand, I think, as a peace movement is that we want to see the cancellation of you all Ukrainian debt. Because um, what we're seeing is even as Ukraine is being bombed, its government is still paying out, you know, seven billion a year to your Western debtors. And, you know, when we look at the amount of damage that's going to be done to this war, uh, you know, it's going to be very harsh. So that's um, something we could do to shape the post-war order. Because, uh, this is another thing which is not really being talked about. Is the, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I remember in the 1980s, we started to become aware of uh, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, how poor countries in the global south, because of the legacy of colonialism, would be locked into debt. Then they would have to go to the West for loans. And then they'd be told, you have to, to get these loans, you have to, you know, and privatize your public services, have the votes of Western multinationals, uh, cut public spending. But something which has not really been talked about very much is the way the IMF and the World Bank are moving into post-war zones. You know, uh, and this is creating you know, um, huge devastation when you have countries who are devastated by war and forced into debt, and then they go to these um, predatory Western financial institutions and uh, are forced to wage an economic war against their own people. And, uh, and just um, one final point um, on this is when we talk about NATO, I think we should also think about what happened in the 20 year NATO war in Afghanistan to replace the Taliban with the Taliban because you know the TB crews have moved on, the political debate in Britain has moved on, but um, you know, uh, when the West left, they hit a country which has been devastated by 40 years of war, which is suffering a climate change caused drought with economic sanctions and huge aid cuts. And as a consequence, 13,000 children, newborn babies in Afghanistan have died in the last three months. You know, that's what our government does. You know, like, so, you know, we can't go along with this idea that NATO is a peace alliance, a defensive alliance. It's um, an imperialist war machine that creates uh, death and devastation. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's part, it seems to me it's part and parcel of um, neoliberal capitalist exploitation of workers across the planet. But there we are. Um, some politicians right, uh, have been, such as Mick Antonio, have called for a no-fly zone. And, you know, we see that um, on the agenda quite a lot in terms of um, different news channels calling for a no-fly zone. What is your opinion on this? Um, well, I think, first of all, I can understand 
white people who are victims of war would call for a no-fly zone and would think a, a more powerful country uh, could help. But I think we have to say something about this is, um, firstly, when we look at previous no-fly zones, they usually haven't been the end of war. They've actually marked the beginning of an escalation of war. But also, leaving that aside, you know, the practicalities, say when you opposed an air no-fly zone on Saddam's Iraq or Gaddafi's Libya or um, in Bosnia, you know, what they did was they uh, took out those states, um, you know, their missile systems, their radar and so forth. And then they committed to shoot down any plane, you know, which uh, entered into the no-fly zone. But if you consider, a, you know, um, there was no chance, you know, of Libya or Iraq or Bosnia, you'll be able to outgun your Western air forces. But when you look at Russia, it has the second biggest air force in the world. Uh, you know, the idea of the United States or its allies bombing, you know, uh, Russia, you know, this could lead to, you know, nuclear war, you know, build sort of third world war. It could really, so I think it's very dangerous because I think what would be likely is far from ending the killing, it would escalate the conflict and spread war more widely and more deeply. And so, uh, sadly, you know, we want to protect the civilians, but um, uh, we must um, must help them. I think this also ties in with another question, which is um, being much debated on the left, which is the question of military aid uh, to Ukrainians, because you know there are always, I think, two dimensions to the war. There is a legitimate uh, war of national defense against the imperialist country invading, but there's also an inter-imperialist dimension of the clash you know, between rival powers was the, what you might call a, a proxy war. So, you know, we know that um, if people are defending themselves, they have to get weapons from somewhere. You know, when we look at the struggle of Ireland for independence, they got uh, weapons from the Germans and imperialist power. But I think these weapons, they always come with a price tag. And just to give us some examples from other conflicts, um, you know, um, the Palestinians, uh, historically, in their national movement, there were almost two wings. There was one who said that the road to Jerusalem and a liberated Palestine ran through Cairo, Amman, Damascus, and Beirut. That we had to overthrow the Arab regimes in order to change the balance of power in the Middle East away from American imperialism and dictatorship towards your know, freedom, democracy, to be able to confront uh, Israel and pressure it you know, to deliver justice. But um, the mainstream strand they felt like, well, we have to rely on military aid and economic aid from the Arab regimes. And so they always cut off the Palestinian struggle for the struggle of the wider Arab working class. And so it's locked um, the Palestinian movement in a very contradictory situation where it can't really entirely link up with the force that can really break imperialism and dictatorship in the Middle East and change the balance of power in their favor. If we look at um, the Kurds historically, Quite often they've been used as pawns by imperialist powers in the favor of freedom. But I think if I if I was a Ukrainian talking about this question of getting weapons from NATO, well, this comes with a political price tag. The first the first price is if you get weapons from NATO, you have to sign up to all the American wars that we've spoken to. You know, in the United Nations, your government has to vote against justice for the Palestinian people, justice for the Yemeni people. And uh, ultimately, you know. 
your country has to sign up to a neoliberal economic agenda and open itself up to Western multinationals. So it's a very dangerous um, uh, for Ukrainians who don't want to be occupied to be locked into this relationship with Western powers. But also there are different interests because you know, I hear sometimes the subsection left, they say, um, they use this phrase, should we arm uh, Ukrainians to resist the invasion of the country? And I think one of the things to say is, we're not going to arm them. You know, I don't think working class people in Wales, we don't have a stash of anti-aircraft missiles, uh, you know, Kalashnikovs. Uh, it's our government who armed them, and our government only arms countries if it thinks it can get something out of it. And, you know, the interests, I think, of um, the West in Ukraine is it's a cost-free war. They think that we can grind down an economic and military rival Russia. We can grind it down militarily, economically, and politically uh, with no cost to ourselves. And so their interest, you know, the interest of Ukrainians might be a speedy end of the war. The interests of uh, the Western powers might be a protracted war, you know, to uh, grind down, uh, you know, their rival with no, no Western soldiers dying. And I think we saw in Afghanistan in the 1980s, you know, you saw what would have been a local conflict between an unpopular communist government and a rural conservatives become a huge war with a devastating death toll, because essentially two superpowers became involved. Russia invaded and occupied to prop up the government. And then the United States pulled in, poured in military aid to the Hedjadeen. And the other thing is the longer wars go on, they breed extremism you know, on all sides. Because you know, war, that's what war does. You know, and, um, you know, and when you have different countries intervening, it creates economic you know, polarization, sorry, not economic, sorry, ethnic, and uh, your political polarization in societies. And that's why I think the Stop the War Coalition is very important that we're looking to people power, you know, to stop the war. We look to the Russian anti-war movement, to, you know, the mutinying of Russian soldiers, to building an international solidarity movement. Because we, you know, we believe that governments start wars, but the working class can stop wars. And I think people don't always have faith that we can stop the slaughter that way. And so they look, so imperialist war machines, but we know in history we have stopped wars, you know, um, you know, through that combination of you know uh, resistance and international solidarity and anti-war movements, we have brought slaughter to an end. And even you know, at its most um sorry, I, I don't know how to put this, but you know, when I read history, I'm tremendously inspired when I think of the slaughter that takes place in war, when you think. Russia's defeat in the 1905, uh, you know, Russia's defeat in 1905 was war with Japan, led to the 1905 Russian Revolution. You know, it's defeat in World War I, led to the 1917 Russian Revolution. It's defeat in Afghanistan was toppled uh, the blocks. So I think, I hope that this war will move us into an era of revolution where we can really confront this whole global economic system. Um, it's something, I think we have a problem is, I think quite a lot of people with the Western peace movements, they've got used to, you know, since the end of the Cold War, think of the United States as being the only imperialist power. But in fact, your know, imperialism is a global system which is based on competing, you know, imperialist capital states who compete to carve up the world, its peoples, its wealth and resources. Uh, and so that's why I think it's so important that we have to not just confront the individual wars or think about who fired the first shot 
we have to think about how this entire economic system that dominates the globe is creating, is breeding this uh, war, how it has conflict written into the heart of it. And I think the best way we can stop war is to really, you know, our main enemies at home, we need to take power of our billionaires, of our oligarchs. And so that's why we also, I think we should raise the story to bring down the oligarchs east and west. Because it's noticeable in the British media, I think in the last, uh, in the last month, we suddenly heard this phrase oligarchy and oligarch, but they always put the word Russian in front of it. But um, I think we have a lot of oligarchs in Britain. They have yachts, you know, they have uh, millions stashed away in tax havens. So let's expropriate their properties. You know, let's set off their yachts and maybe use it to pay some of our people's gas bills. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's a Chandler's in Pall Mall that supplies sun seekers to anybody who's got money wherever they come from. They don't, you know, they don't really care when they're supplying super yachts where the money came from, as long as they're getting the money, right? The, the, these, the, these people who build these things. And so consequently, you know, we know that, that um, people from all across the planet who are exploiting workers' interests and ripping money out of systems and ripping money out of government funds in country after country after country uh, are nothing more or less than criminals and that they go they go in and they they've got they've got so much money they have to spend it on something and so they buy you know they buy these big toys these playthings right and like you know Abramovich bought Chelsea the football club it's the same thing it's just another toy for them to play with because they you know, they don't know what to do with all this money that they've expropriated from the people. Um, I think it's very interesting uh, that that last that, that last whole last section that you that that you spoke about, and and the question that popped into my mind was um, the the whole issue of um, self determination uh, in in different countries. I mean, we know that in, in, in that the Ukrainian people are actually fighting for their very existence at the moment on the ground they're you know they're coming forward and you know they're throwing as you said earlier they're throwing molotov cocktails at tanks and you know stuff like that and you know they're on they're they're armed right by um you know van loads of weapons coming into the country but they are, they are actually making a stand against imperialist aggression. So I, I wonder what your position is on, on self-determination in Ukraine. Uh, well, obviously, um, you know, within Stop the War Coalition, it's, a, you know, it's an umbrella organization, so it has people of many different tendencies, you know, people from military families, people who are pacifists. So... Um, I can only give my own personal view of this question. I think, um, you know, quite clearly, you know, Putin has said that he wants to negate Ukraine's existence. Uh, he's used his rhetoric. I'm not sure if this is entirely what he wants. I think he probably wants a puppet government, much like the United States have installed throughout the world. But, um, yeah, for Ukrainians' right to self-determination and for their right to resist this invasion, but I would say that you know, if I was a Ukrainian on the left, I'd say we need to build as much political independence as we can. You know, Ukraine should be a neutral country, not aligned with the Western or the Russian bloc. You know, we should um, 
you know, we need to, um, you know, have redistribution of our wealth in our country. Because basically, I think what happened in Ukraine is a great tragedy. And the when we look at, you know, the struggle for independence uh, in the early 1990s and the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, there were huge strikes, minor strikes in the Donbass supported, you know, in Eastern Ukraine supported in Western Ukraine. Uh, there was huge, you know, almost a unity for a time of working class people. But I think what happened was many of the politicians there were very corrupt, sought to stoke up ethnic and sectarian tensions, you know, to their own advantage. And then this has become internationalized, you know, where you have, you know, rival economic blocks, rival powers outside, each intervening in different ways, politically, economically, and militarily, in order to further their agenda in Ukraine. And that's really tore the country apart. And, you know, um, and so, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine, but somehow we need to find a way of, you know, building a common agenda. You know, that's true self-determination. If we have a common agenda of, you know, the poor and dispossessed and working class people in Ukraine, and to start to build this unity, you know, with the working class in other countries, you know, in places like Belarus, and, you know, in bordering countries like Poland, you know, between Eastern and Western Europe. And I think that's one of the reasons actually um, uh, Stop the War Coalition, the CND, uh, they called an international day of action against the war in Ukraine. And I think that element of internationalism was quite important that we could hold uh, the same day as we marched in Cardiff. There were 40 demonstrations in Russia, you know, or there were people demonstrating in the United States you know, on the other side of Dubai. So I think we have to build what you might call a third camp. Uh, you know, as the old story goes, neither Washington nor Moscow, we have to build this third camp of popular power, people power, where we stop looking to these imperialist states and, you know, these capitalist governments for solutions to our problems. And we start linking up with each other because otherwise, you know, what they try to do is they force us into choices. You know, uh, uh, you know they say, well, to protect yourself from you know, Russia, you have to go with the a more powerful gangster, you know, the United States government, this thing. We, you know, we have to get out of this game. And so it's very important that we start to build, I think, this sense of international solidarity of people and the sense of people power, uh, not governments as the solution to our problems. Well, there we are. Well, thank you very much, Adam. It's been most illuminating to have this have this chance to to listen to your views on stop the war Cymru, uh and what's you know what i think is a very informative um position on what's going on in ukraine i, I wonder whether if whether you've actually got any um actions coming up in the near future that you might want to mention uh, is there anything taking place in Cardiff in the near future um, that you might want to say something well, about? We're, we're still in discussion, but we'd like to um, do an educational event on Ukraine because, you know, we know that ideas like any other motive force have to be organised. And I think um, it can only empower us to want to stop the war if we start, you know, um, you know reading up more about the history of Ukraine, understanding about NATO, about the nature of imperialism, all these questions. It's quite important for us to come together to discuss and debate. And I think that can help inform action. And 
I think the other thing um, I find very inspiring is actually the level of solidarity that's been shown in Wales you know, towards Ukrainian people. You know, 10,000 people have offered to open their homes in Wales to Ukrainians. And I find that very moving. And uh, so I think we need to need to build on that. And obviously, you know, we want to show this hospitality to all refugees. But I think there have been very positive developments, you know, um, uh, the way Wales has welcomed, you know, refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and previous wars, or even the announcement of um, uh, by the Welsh government, who I'm not always a big fan of, but their announcement of free rail travel uh, for refugees. I think that's very powerful because um, over the last decades of both the UK and Welsh government, sorry, over the last decades of the UK government, both Labour and Tory, has been building up this hostile environment. You know, the idea that we have to really make life hard for refugees when they come here. And so I think things like giving your free public transport to people who are very poor, who fled your, the horrors of war or climate change or economic chaos, I think it's a very powerful gesture. This shows that even within its limited powers, limited budget, you know, the Welsh government can make a difference. And so we need to think, I think, as a grassroots movement, oh, where can we push uh, for the Welsh government to really live up to the idea of being a nation of sanctuary? You know, we know the Welsh government doesn't have controls over our border policies, but what can it do? You know, it's a human, try and humanize the agenda in Britain. Uh, is your, Britain is responsible for such great crimes around the world. Absolutely. You know, the crime of the British Empire, the crime of slavery, you know, the yeah. crime of these wars of aggression, you know, from Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, the crime of supplying arms and aid to dictatorships all around the world. And so I see particularly supporting refugees as a form of reparations, you know, um, towards uh, the victims of the mayhem and murder that our government's created around the world. So um, I hope that we can really um, start to shift the political agenda in Wales in support of refugees, but also to force our Welsh government to become a robust anti-war government, which it isn't. It's only ever opposed the war in Ukraine. It's not opposed war on Palestinians. It's not opposed war on Afghans. It's not opposed war on Iraqis. I mean, many of us will remember disgracefully uh, our first minister at the time of the Iraq war, Roger Morgan, when he was asked on question time, his opinion on the Iraq war, the biggest issue in politics, he said, I can't take an opinion. It's not a devolved issue. We want to, you know, to build a Wales, I think, which has the values of sol international solidarity, internationalism, and peace. Because we do have a proud history. You know, not all of us, our ruling class and our establishment in Wales don't have a tradition of peace or internationalism. But we know the Wales disproportionately uh, supported the cause of republicanism during the Spanish Civil War, you know, sending both people to fight fascism, but also medical aid. We know that we had the Wales anti-apartheid movement. And we know that um, thousands of people marched against wars, you know, in Iraq and elsewhere, and uh, mm -hmm. have taken action in solidarity with the Palestinians. And in Cardiff as well, we have one of, you know, we have um, a very old Yemeni community. And I think it's time to say, I think, to our Welsh political establishment, no more links with arms companies who supply Saudi Arabia to bomb Yemen. You know, um, you know what we need is, I think, a, a media moratorium on um, uh, any new contracts with arms companies. We want the Welsh government to stop renting out land, which is used by Saudi pilots 
in North Wales and to become an anti-war government and an internationalist uh, Welsh government. Well, thank you very much, Adam. That's been really, really a, a great a, a great discussion. Maybe maybe you'll come back at another time, um, and we can we can we can talk about um, the whole issue of, of of militarism in Wales. But I think that's for another debate. Um, and I would just like to say thank you, thank you again for agreeing to do. Well, there we are. Thank you so much. Well, I'm going to end there. Um, the, the, the Political Imagination podcast um, is, a, is an occasional podcast and we will be coming forward again with some interesting topics in the near future. So I hope everybody who's listening has enjoyed listening to this and we'll be on the air again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao, bella, ciao, bella, ciao, ciao, ciao.